Father, help us to receive everything from your hand. Whether trial and tribulation, whether joy or sorrow, help us now to receive from your word exactly what you have ordained for each person here. You, O oh God, are completely sufficient. And your word absolutely is enough for us. And so give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to embrace that which you have said. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you will, turn with me this morning to Second Thessalonians as we rejoin our study through the Thessalonian epistles. We're coming now to chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians after several weeks of a, of a break during the holiday season. We plan on working through the next several weeks, chapter 2. We'll take a brief break in, on, in January the 16th to talk about biblical sexual morality I'll explain to you a little bit more about that on that day. But really coming back now to 2 Thessalonians and, and want to remind you that the church at Thessalonica was a young church, a very young church. When we began this study through the Thessalonian epistles, we, we learned right at the beginning that the church was founded in the midst of great suffering, founded in the midst of great suffering, forged in the fires of persecution. Almost as soon as the gospel was preached there, almost as soon as people began believing the gospel, they were faced with this onslaught of intensifying persecution. And there was this, remember the, the, the uproar, the, the riot, as, as some jealous Judaizers conscripted some evil men to start this riot there in Thessalonica. They formed a mob and I mean, the suffering on this church was, was right there from the very beginning. And that fit well with Paul's continual ministry as he would go back around the churches. And, and in fact, the Bible tells us in, in Acts 14.22 that he often said to those churches as he was strengthening them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. His message wasn't, hey, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. God always wants your best. He wants you to be healthy, wealthy, you know, and blessed and all of those kind of things. He said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But in Thessalonica, the pressure really seemed to be intense and intensifying. And it was all of that affliction and all of that suffering, it just kept going it kept going, kept intensified. There wasn't an end in sight. It started from the very beginning. As I said, there wasn't a moment that they knew as a believer without suffering. All of that caused them to wonder whether or not they, talking about the church, the Christians, were actually experiencing the wrath of God. You see, Paul no doubt took time when he was there as he, as he taught them through the Old Testament in Thessalonica, as we read in Acts chapter 17, Paul, no doubt, 
took time to teach these young believers on a thought or on a theme of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. We talked about that back in 1 Thessalonians. just want to remind you of a couple things. The day of the Lord is referring, and it's important that you get this, especially if you're going to understand 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The day of the Lord is referring to a yet future period of time in which God will pour out His wrath on a world of sinful men. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of doom, six different times. Four different times, it's called the day of vengeance. Revelation 6.17 calls it the great day of wrath, the, the final day. In the New Testament, we hear this day called His day, the day of wrath, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, the the great day of God Almighty. Now, in an earlier study, when we were looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we learned that the day of the Lord is not referring to a singular event. It's not a singular event, but it is a period of time. It is We could call the day of the Lord, we could refer to it as referring to a series of events which culminates in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you that the day of the Lord is referring to a period of time which begins with the catching away of the church, includes the yet future seven-year period of tribulation to come on the whole world, known as the tribulation or the, the great tribulation, up to the point of which time the Lord Jesus Christ returns physically to the earth, puts his feet on the earth, and establishes his kingdom, and then brings a full end to everything, ushers us into eternity. That's a summary, a synopsis of what's holed up in this phrase, the day of the Lord. But, getting back to Thessalonica, the fact of all this suffering in Thessalonica was causing them to wonder It just kept going, it just kept getting more and more intense. It was causing them to wonder whether or not they were in the midst of God's wrath. They were asking the question, are we in the day of the Lord right now? Are we experiencing, are we feeling God's wrath? Essentially, they're asking, are we in the tribulation that Paul talked to us about? Now, When we talk about eschatology, you've heard that word before, we've used it here many times, eschatology referring to the study of end times, the study of the last days. The issue of eschatology was evidently something that really caught their attention. It was really something that caught their mind. It was interesting to them. But despite the fact of its interest to them, it had caused quite a bit of trepidation quite a bit of fear, quite a bit of confusion. Future events have a way of doing that, don't they? I have talked to many people in this church who have experienced confusion and even a certain amount of fear when it comes to the issues of the last time. The longer I study the Bible, the longer I study specifically the aspect of eschatology, the more I'm coming to understand there are many things I don't understand in terms of the finer points and details. Uh, And frankly, we often don't understand how things work out in terms of future events, which can lend itself to confusion and even some level of fear. In fact, that's exactly what was going on 
in Thessalonica, as is evidenced by the first two verses of chapter 2. Look at the first two verses of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind and alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Stop right there. What I want to do today is just do a flyover of chapter 2. I'm not... I'm not intending to get very detailed this morning. I want to do a flyover. I just want to introduce the text to you. And the first thing that we notice here in this passage is that Paul is beginning a new section. He, he's talking about something new. It's communicated now concerning. Now, and as for this, you know, it's kind of what he's bringing up. He talks about here, now notice, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. Now, let me just point something out to you about the grammar here. Do you notice that there's only one article, the, right? Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being quickly gathered to Him. Grammarians tell us that that indicates something, that He's not talking about two separate events here, but only one. Maybe something like this. Somebody who talks about the wedding day and their reception. Wedding day, kind of big, but specifically talking about the reception. He's referring here to one specific aspect of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, namely our being gathered together to him. It's this same event that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, an event that at that point we called the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church. He already told them about the rapture of the church. He already told them about the great day of the Lord. He told them that the next great event on God's timetable is the catching away of the church. The upward call of every genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ when Christ appears in the clouds. So he's bringing up a new subject, a new theme. But something else I notice about this text is the tenderness with which he brings it up. There's affection here. You, you see what he says there? We ask you, brothers. He has every right as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to come down hard on them. You know? You know how when you... You constantly tell something to people and they just don't get it. Or it's like you, you're talking and they're looking at you and they're just waiting for your lips to stop moving so they can say something opposite of what you've just said. Any parents here? And, 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 and our tendency is to say, now look, I told you, right? But Paul doesn't do that. Hey, I've already told you this. Come on, guys. Quit being so thick-headed. He doesn't say that. He's tender and affectionate to the point where he says, we ask you. And the word ask is like, I'm begging you. I'm imploring you. Like a parent who sees their child in the midst of confusion and fear, who knows that they don't have to be there, and he's just so tender toward, look, honey, I don't want you to be there. Don't have to do this. Now, the face, the, 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 the presence of intensifying persecution the daily suffering that the Thessalonians were enduring had caused those believers to be confused because they were thinking that they were in the midst of 
the tribulation. And his desire was that they, look, not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. To be quickly shaken in mind. First of all, the word quickly means suddenly. The, the word, made, it, it means suddenly, like to come on all of a sudden. And to be shaken in mind has the idea of what happens when the earth quakes. What happens when the earth quakes? There's a shaking, and it seems to knock things loose. And you know what it speaks of? It speaks of disorientation. I remember one time, Corey, you'll remember this, when we were in Mexico some years ago, and there was a, an earthquake. Do you remember that, Corey? There was an earthquake, and I was standing there teaching, and, and in the, the earthquake, it, it was like a, you were riding a wave, and I didn't know what, I thought I was having a heart attack. And I looked to Corey as if to say, I'm dying, finish this. And then I see him sort of looking a little bewildered, and I think, he knows I'm dying too, you know? And you're having an earthquake, it just, it disorients you. You're like, wait, what are we doing? He says, when it comes to the coming of the Lord, and I'm speaking specifically here about our being gathered to him, don't be disoriented. Don't be confused. A lot of people confuse when it comes to the coming of Christ and our being gathered. Don't be disoriented. But not only that, he says, do not be alarmed. That word speaks of fear. In fact, it is a strong word that's used of being terrified. He says, don't be disoriented and don't become distressed. Caleb was telling me a few, uh, well, we, we talked about this yesterday. He said, Dad, remember when, when uh, we were having a Thanksgiving dinner here and everybody came on Sunday, Saturday afternoon to get all ready for that? I said, yeah. He said, I came and... and uh, he, he said, you asked me to take some things back to the burn pile. And he said, so that's what I did. I walked down and burned everything, came back 15, 20 minutes later. He said, but I came back in the gym and noticed something. Nobody was there. I mean, it was, it was tons of people there. And then all of a sudden, nobody, that, and all their cars were still there. And there wasn't noise. He said, uh-oh. He said, I walked around, looked in the bathrooms, nobody is there. He said, I, he said, I literally ran up to the church building here, looked through every classroom, nobody. He said, I called you, you didn't answer. I called mom, she didn't answer. I called my sisters, they didn't answer. I called mama and papa, they didn't answer. I think you said, did you say you were getting ready to cry or you started crying? You don't have to tell me, don't worry about that. But... <laughs> He said, and I was, he didn't say alarmed, but I was terrified. So I got in my car, because this was just a few years ago. He wasn't like 10 years old. I get in my car, and he said, I drove as fast as I could to go to Memo and Papa's house, because I knew they weren't here, and maybe I would go and find them outside. He said, and then finally, as I was gone, you called and said, hey, what's up? He said, oh my goodness, where are you? I thought you were in heaven. I thought the rapture happened, and I was, that will alarm you. It will terrify you. And Paul says, don't be terrified. Don't be disoriented and don't become distressed. So you get the sense of what was happening in Thessalonica, don't you? They were living in terror thinking what? That they missed it. They missed the rapture. They, they 
thought that they were in the midst of the day of the Lord, and they didn't expect to be. They heard Paul tell them that they would not face the day of the Lord's wrath, and so they're terrified thinking that they were facing it. Oh my goodness, we missed it. When it came to, their, to the issue of, primarily the issue of their being gathered to the Lord at His coming, they were fearful. They were fearful that they had missed it. They were experiencing so much suffering, so much persecution, and added to that, there were people who were going around under the guise of the authority of the Apostle Paul saying, guess what? We missed it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 speaks of that false teaching. There were some people who were giving prophecies. That's what he says, uh, let no one deceive you. Or, um, sorry, verse 2, either by spirit, by a spirit. I have a, I have a prophecy to give. Here, here's, here's what the Lord told me. Somebody saying to you in the middle of the church service, somebody told me, here's, here's what God revealed to me, either by a spirit or a spoken word that probably refers to a sermon. Maybe they heard somebody preach a sermon saying, far as I can tell, I'm doing all this stuff, you know, and you, you ever, you've heard of the date setters and all those guys, and they have all their mathematical equations and blah, 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 and they're, they're, just, they're spewing word salads of nonsense out, and you go, man, maybe, maybe they're right. Right? You hear the spirit of prophecy, you hear a sermon, and then apparently somebody wrote a letter and said, this is what Paul said. So they're getting, man, they are really jacked up. They're really concerned. What in the world is going on here? But Paul doesn't get mad, as I said. He's, to the contrary, he's quite affectionate, quite tender, and he wants them to understand that they were not facing the day of the Lord. Why? Because the things, they were not facing the day of the Lord because there were necessary things that had to take place in order for the advent of the day of the Lord to happen. You can't talk about being in the midst of the day of the Lord when these things did not happen. So what we have, again, just trying to do it, I want to pull back here and not get into too much detail. I want to do an overview of chapter 2. It's important that you see all of these verses, verses 1 through 17, as being a unit. One unit explaining, giving us an expose on the events sent, uh, of the day of the Lord, centering around one key figure. And who is that? Well, he's called the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, referring, of course, to Antichrist himself. Now, before you get into the, you know, the, the sensationalizing of this, Paul is not concerned here with, with satisfying their curiosity as to the identity of the Antichrist. He's concerned about bringing them comfort. That's what this text is all about. He wants to comfort the church. I like what MacArthur said. He said, unlike much, unlike much contemporary teaching on eschatology, Paul's motive was not sensational but pastoral. His goal was not to gratify curiosity about the end times, but to comfort confused Christians. And what I want to do this morning is I want you to see how the apostle weaves together this chapter actually as a message of comfort to genuine believers when it comes to the events at the end of time. Just an introduction. Not going to be kicking around the final de finer details. We'll probably get into that in a couple of weeks. 
But I just want you to see how everything in chapter 2 fits together for the comfort of the believers so that you can understand how you can have comfort and hope when you think about the events of the end times. And lots of people are thinking about the events of the end times nowadays, aren't they? Many people thinking about the end times. Many people wondering. Many people inquiring about the last days. How can you, as the church of Jesus Christ, have hope and comfort when you think about the end times? I guess that's what I could have entitled this study. Hope and comfort in light of the end times. Let me just read the text for you, and then we'll kind of walk through it just just a bit. All right, now we'll come down to verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now you notice that Paul is telling them that it's not possible that you are in the midst of the day of the Lord because there are certain things that have to take place before we can say we're in the day of the Lord and those things categorically have not taken place. You might hear people say that today, that we're in the day of the Lord, we're in the tribulation period or whatever it might be, and Paul is giving them, and I would say Paul is giving us, the proof to say that we today are not in the day of the Lord, we are not in the tribulation right now, because there are certain things that have to happen in order for that day to come about that categorically have not happened. What are they? Well, first, there must be a great rebellion. A great rebellion. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, again, notice how he doesn't give any details here. 
One of the things you need to be careful of, especially when it comes to eschatology, is supplying details which are not supplied in the text or sometimes in any other text as well. If Just be leery of those who are going to come at you with charts as opposed to trying to explain the Scriptures. In, in other words, he's not necessarily interested in giving all the finer details. Those are not the important things, right? He says here there has to be this great rebellion or apostasy. I'm persuaded that this apostasy is to be interpreted just like that, and it means a falling away. Some people have taken this to be a reference to the rapture. They've taken the word rebellion and, and, and talked about it as being a removal I can't see that. I don't think that that's an accurate reading of the Scripture. It refers to a general falling away from the faith. In order for the day of the Lord to come, there must be an absolute falling away from the faith. People have to turn from the faith, which then leads us to the next event, and that is not only a great rebellion, but a gross revelation. What is that? Look at this. Then the man, uh, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then notice how he describes. Now we have a few more details. Man of lawlessness, son of destruction, which brings to mind who? Brings to mind Judas, which has caused some people to say, I think the Antichrist will be Judas resurrected. Probably not. The son of destruction. And then he Explains a little bit more. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In other words, there is no way anyone can say with any certainty we are in the day of God's wrath until the Antichrist is clearly revealed. And when will he be clearly revealed? When he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So I'm just taking this at face value, friends. I'm not going to try to allegorize this or spiritualize this at all. I'm saying don't be disoriented, don't become distressed, and don't be deceived because God is actually in control. Don't allow yourself to be disoriented over all of this stuff that's going on today because God is actually in control He is actually doing something right now. As if it's not that these things can happen willy-nilly or by themselves. God is actually in control. In fact, he goes on to say that God is actually restraining this one. We we know that the spirit, the mystery of lawlessness is all around us. I mean, you can see how these kinds of events can take place just like that. It's like kindling wood right now. It just just needs a spark and these events can take place right now. The mystery of lawlessness is revealed everywhere around us. It can happen at any moment just like that. But why aren't these things taking place yet? Because he says there's something restraining it. Now, the Thessalonians know who, who or what that is. He calls it a, a, a he, right? Everybody wants, what is that with what's restraining? I don't know. I'm going to say God. Why? Because God did the same thing for Job back in the Old Testament. The devil is God's devil, 
right? In order for him to do anything, he's got to have the permission of God. And so God is restraining, restraining rather, restraining this, this, the, the, the revelation of this evil son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, this one who's going to sit in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. That hasn't happened yet. And you say, oh, well, wait a minute. Dr. Fauci said this, and he's, no, I'm, he's not it. If we have to wait for every, if we have to spiritualize, well, if you look through these glasses and stand in your head and twirl around and listen to this record back, back, you know, backwards, you'll understand that he's the Antichrist or whatever. Come on, stop it. Don't be disoriented. Don't be disturbed and distressed and don't be deceived. So look, that wasn't in my notes, but you have here in chapter two is this expose Sitting around this one guy says, it's not happening yet. God's going to restrain. And, when, and, and, and by the way, who's the restraining one? I think it's God. You know? Some say, well, it's the church. It's the preaching of the gospel. And yeah, it's just no proof of that. God is the one who And when God takes his hand away, doesn't mean that God has to be removed. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has to be removed from the earth as if that's what happens in the rapture of the church. Not at all right? The Holy Spirit is not confined to the church, praise the Lord, right? This is God, and when he just takes his hand, when he withdraws his hand and says, now it's time, and, and, and these things serve God's timetable, not ours, and not their own. These certain things serve God's timetable. You see how he's trying to comfort the Christians? Oh, okay, that's right. It's, 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 I don't know all the details, that's right, these, these are confusing, and then I get, all these, I get all this interference coming in from these different wackos who are trying to get you to believe that I'm, they're actually teaching for Paul, and they're not. You get all confused, you get trepidation, you get fearful. No, 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 that's right, God is in control. God is in control. And, and notice how he doesn't really get into the details, but he just says, again, they're, they're not necessarily chronological details, but verse 7, uh, 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 the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken away. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And the only detail is this, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth. This, things are not running rampant. <laughs> not out of control at all. The coming of the lawless one, he says, in verse 9, will be by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. And then you start, you start feeling your, you know, the, you, you start feeling the fear getting back. Oh my goodness, false signs, wonders. I'm not going to know. What am I gonna? And, and he says, but, but God is actually using, God's in control. God's actually using him to send a strong sense of delusion upon who? Those who do not believe the truth. How do they know they don't believe the truth? Because they love unrighteousness. And see, here's the point that Paul is making. He's telling the Thessalonians, that's not you. You've believed the truth. And you don't love unrighteousness. You have no danger of being in the day of the Lord because that day God will send a strong delusion, but you have believed the truth. Praise the Lord. You're not in the day of the Lord and you don't need to fear it because you have believed the truth. So I might finish this by just summarizing this way. How do you face the end times without fear? 
How do you face the end times with comfort and hope? I'll tell you how. Two ways. How do you handle this? How do you face the last days? Number one, you've got to be saved by grace through faith. You've got to be saved by grace through faith. That's what he says, verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, God elected you. God called you out as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. If you want to face the last days without fear, if you want comfort and hope in the midst of these last days, you have to be saved by grace through faith. And that simply means this. You come to embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ. That that the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and lived a perfectly sinless life. He worked miracles, raised the dead, made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, fed thousands, walked on water. Never sinned, not even one time. You have to come to embrace the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ, this same Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfectly and absolutely innocent, yet was taken and nailed to a cross because the Bible says that God was laying on him the sin of us all. Listen to this. He was laying on him the sin of us all. Believe the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ died in our place when he died on the cross. That that means that he paid the penalty for our sin. He was the wrath-bearing sacrifice. Talk about the day of wrath? Well, let's talk first of all about that day in which Jesus Christ completely bore the wrath of God in our place. You've got to come to embrace the gospel and that he suffered and bled and died and he was placed into a tomb. Embrace that. Embrace the fact that three days later he literally, bodily, physically rose from the dead giving proof that he in fact paid the full price, that his payment was accepted. Embrace the gospel. If you want to face the last days without fear, but with comfort and hope, you must be saved by grace through faith. God's grace, God's God's matchless, perfect, free gift, and you grasp onto that by faith. And he says, you say, but how did that happen? Oh, well, you see, if you think that faith is about you, then you've got it all wrong. What you need to understand is, when you find yourself beginning to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, immediately that's a hint to you. That's, a, that's an indicator to you that God is actually doing something. What is that? The sanctification by the Spirit. He's separating you. You might not be able to see it because it's like wind. We don't see where the we don't see wind, but we see its effects, right? You, you begin to embrace the gospel and don't think that you're doing this because, of, because you know, Somebody has convinced you or you're just smart enough or you're good enough. No, you recognize if you find yourself saying, I'm, I'm embracing the gospel, then recognize that that's because God by his spirit invisibly did a work to sanctify you, to set you apart to that truth so that you might believe the gospel when it comes to you like through the apostle Paul, through the written word of God. That's it. You want to face the end times with, without fear? with comfort and hope, then be saved by grace 
through faith. And if you say, I will not, then just look back up to verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. First, be saved by grace through faith. Second, be steadfast by faith through grace. Be steadfast by grace, by, by faith through grace. Be saved by grace through faith. Be steadfast by faith through grace. What do I mean? Well, see, that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to stand firm. That's the whole point in Thessalonians. Brothers, stand firm in what you've already heard. Stand firm in what you know. How do you stand firm? How do you be steadfast by faith through grace? Well, first of all, make sure you're rejoicing. What do you mean rejoicing? Well, he says in verse 13, we ought to always give thanks to God. Make sure that your rejoicing centers around, hey, God did something here. I'm all concerned and I'm all fearful and I'm all disoriented about everything that's going on today and what the future is going to... But come back, come on back in and look at what God has done. Remember how He graciously, sovereignly intervened in your life to give you the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember how you embrace the gospel and be rejoicing in that. And secondly, if you're going to be steadfast by faith through grace, you'd be rejoicing. And then secondly, you've got to be reminded. And that's what Paul's doing here. You, you, you heard that up in verse 5. Don't you remember while I was still with you, I told you this? Verse 15, brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Be reminded. Be reminded. In the word, you know? In prayer. Be reminded of the truth that you know. Keep coming back. That's why we say, man, if, if your concentration is on social media and your concentration is on cable news and your concentration is in, if anybody still reads newspapers anymore, if your concentration is on those things, well, of course you're going to be fearful and of course you're going to be disoriented and, and distressed and deceived. Just keep coming back. And listen, in order for you to be reminded of the truth, in order for you to be steadfast in the truth, don't think that you have to understand everything perfectly. Embrace what you know. Did you understand perfectly the gospel of Jesus Christ when you confess faith in Jesus Christ? No. But what you knew, you said, okay, I'm going to hold to that. See, a lot of people are getting knocked off their rocker when it comes to eschatology because they can't understand how everything can work out. And how can this popular teacher have this view and this popular teacher have this view and this popular teacher have this view? And you get knocked off your rocker because you're not coming back to just, listen, yeah, I understand people are going to have different views and whatever, but there are certain things that I don't know and that I'm not going to need to know, but there are certain things that are absolutely incontrovertible, undeniable truth that God has revealed. Just keep coming back to that. If you're going to be steadfast by faith through grace, you need to be rejoicing and you need to be reminded and you need to be reliant. He talks here about praying and, and may God himself, through our Lord Jesus Christ, give this to you. And, and I have found this. I have found strength when I come around other believers in Christ and I come around the local church and, and we get... We, we, we begin praying together. And, we, you know, ha, have you experienced that before? 
you come together with other believers in Christ and you set your hearts to praying and, and pretty soon, man, you're ready to charge hell with a water pistol because you're so encouraged in the midst of that prayer and you're so encouraged by seeing other people serve and be served and their spiritual gifts being used and you're just like, come on, let's go, let's get it, right? You want to face these last days without fear, with comfort, with hope? Sure you do. Well, be saved by grace through faith. And be steadfast. Put your roots down. Dig down and say, I'm standing here and I'm not moving until he catches me away. Even if I don't understand everything else. And that's essentially what he says to the Thessalonians. Praise the Lord, you are not going to obtain wrath, but you are going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14. That's what we're looking for. I'm not looking to obtain wrath. I'm looking to obtain glory the full glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's an an introduction. There's a lot more to say here in this text, and I'm sure that perhaps, though the, the point of this text is not to satisfy your curiosity, perhaps some curiosity has been raised as we talk about these things. And so what I'd like to do next week, Lord willing, is come back and go through this with a little bit of a finer tooth comb and find out what truth there is for us as God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Forgive us for how often we've neglected it. I pray for those who are here and perhaps are listening and maybe they're more moved by fear and confusion when it comes to the end times. Pray for those that you are sanctifying by your spirit right now, that you are, that you are pulling apart and setting aside for righteousness as they hear the gospel and for those who have just for the first time believed the gospel. Oh Lord, help us to be growing in you. May you strengthen your church for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Together, all God's people said, amen. Would you stand together?